Good morning. And as Dean expressed and Anna shared this morning, thank you, Anna, for being here and sharing with us as we celebrate Sanctity of Life Sunday. The first thing we remember, the first thing we recognize on Sanctity of Life Sunday is that God is the generous giver of life. And so life is important because not only does God own it, he created it, he gives it, but it's also as human life, as Anna said, is created in his image. And so to honor life is to honor God, and we want to honor it this morning. God is the generous giver of life. And our posture on a day like this is to be one of imitation, as we imitate valuing life because God values life, because it's his. Now, this morning as we continue in our mission series, which we'll be in for the next few months, we're considering what it means, we're considering our mission statement, what it means to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. And in January, we're expanding on that initial phrase of our mission statement, to be a people. What does it mean to be a people? Which speaks to our identity. Who are we as the people of God? And today we look at our third core value through that lens of being a people. So we've looked at what does it mean to be a word-centered people? We've looked at what does it mean to be a radically dependent people. And this week we look at what does it mean to be a generously loving people. And today's text, if you would like to turn there in your Bible, I'd love for you to. There's Bibles in your pews in front of you. And 2 Corinthians is like the 7th or 8th book in the New Testament. So uh, go to the end and start working your way backwards until you find 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And um, I want to give a, a little bit more explanation of the context of this entire chapter. Uh, Vicki read us the last half of it, but in this chapter, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, it was the second letter that we have that's, that, that is still out there, that we still have access to, that Paul wrote to this church in the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, And this is a church that Paul himself had planted. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. He started the church there, and he started many churches in that area, which is modern Greece is where it's at. He planted these churches in both Macedonia, an area to the north north part of Greece, and also in Achaia, which was the southern part of Greece. And he's asking them for funds. He's He's gone around, he's collecting funds from these various churches that he's planted, intending to take those funds back to Judea, back to Israel, back to Palestine, because the churches there were experiencing some pretty serious difficulties resulting from both famine and from persecution. And so that's the context that he writes this chapter in. So let's back up to verse 1 and read what he says to them, some very practical instructions. It says, now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. In other words, the, the ministry of giving of this fund, this, these monies to support the saints in Judea. It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. In other words, he's talking about their, the churches in cities like Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi, the ones up in, in northern Greece. He's boasting these people, saying that Achaia, where Corinth and Athens are located, has been ready since last year. And your zeal, your excitement has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, 
so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So this Corinthian church, the believers in this church had expressed and even lived out some sort of zeal or excitement to collect funds and funds for relief for the churches in Judea and send them at some point with Paul. They were, they were excited about this opportunity. And their excitement, their excitement had, had bubbled over as Paul goes and tells about how excited they are. It's bubbled over to these other churches to do the same thing. So now Paul sent this letter with some of his traveling companions before he arrives at Corinth to help this church in Corinth be prepared with the promised funds when Paul arrives. He would have hated to have you know, boasted about their, they're so excited they're going to give a bunch and then show up and there's nothing and have these stories about them that he had told be untrue. So he's preparing them. Now it feels kind of like a strange exchange Because even though Paul wants them to give freely to support these needed churches, his appeal comes across to our modern minds almost as strong-arming or shaming. Hey, you said you were going to do this. You better do this, you know, or or we're going to be ashamed. We're going to be embarrassed. But I don't really think that's what Paul's doing here. I don't think that's his heart. I think what we see here is an apostle. He's the church planter, right? He's the original founding pastor, the spiritual father to these people. And what he's doing is holding a group of believers accountable to what they've already committed themselves to. He's holding them accountable to what they've committed themselves to. And he's also giving them an appropriate and respectful heads up. Like, hey, I'm coming. Make sure that you're ready so that they're prepared, so that they're not put on the spot and embarrassed themselves when he himself shows up. Now, but he doesn't end here. That's, that's a very practical part of it. Here's what I'm doing. Get ready. I'm sending these guys to get you prepared. But then he ends the chapter with, with all that practical giving, Do it freely, do it cheerfully, not as an exaction. And then he undergirds all of this with the theology of generosity. And that's what the rest of the passage is about. Articulating the basis for their gift, which boils down, as I read this passage, to at least six poignant truths. And the first is that generosity is a deep kingdom principle. Generosity is a deep kingdom principle. So look at verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So Paul's just speaking an everyday maxim or proverb using the world of agriculture and applying it to their situation, applying it to a, a spiritual situation, but it also has economic implications. We can find a corollary to this truth in in Paul's writings in the book of Galatians when he writes to the Galatians in chapter 6 verse 7. It says, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But in in the context of Galatians, he's talking about good and evil. He's talking about behavior, about sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit. He's, He's talking about the type of seed sown. Is it evil, fleshly, 
seed or is it spiritual good seed? In this context, though, in 2 Corinthians, he's not talking about the type of seed sown. He's talking about the amount of seed sown. So if you take, for instance, Jesus' famous parable of the sower, right? Jesus tells this story about a farmer who goes out into the field to plant seeds, to sow. So he would have a, have a bag on his, on his hip and, and would cast seeds into the field and sow the field with grain or whatever kind of seed he was sowing with. And he's just sow, throwing seed everywhere. And in this story, the, the sower that Jesus describes is indiscriminate about where he sows the seed. He's sowing it in the, in the good soil. He's throwing it in the weeds. He's throwing it on the rocks. He's throwing it in the path. He's throwing it everywhere. It goes everywhere. He's indiscriminate. And, and we know that the seed that this sower is sowing is the word of the kingdom. And he's not stingy about the amount that he throws. He's deliberately liberal and lavish with his distribution of the seed. Some of us who are more practical and economical would follow that sower and be like, what in the world are you doing? Who taught you how to do this? But generosity in Jesus' viewpoint from a kingdom viewpoint is a deep principle of the kingdom. God is not a stingy God. His character is lavish and generous and abundant and overflowing with grace. And when God sows generously, he reaps generously. And it's not that every seed that God sows takes root. It's not like every seed that we sow will take root and grow into a bountiful harvest. But because of the liberality of the sowing, the general principle stands that the harvest will also be bountiful. Could you imagine a life, or what life would be like, if God sowed sparingly? It would be a difficult life. God wants us to be imitators of his bountiful grace. Now, when you read this passage, I want to warn all of us away from falling for the lie that this verse teaches some kind of prosperity gospel. This is not a promise. It's a proverb. It's a general principle for how the world works, for how God's kingdom works. Paul is not saying that the more you give financially, the more God will bless you financially. That's the prosperity gospel. And in fact, as we'll see, that idea is an entire contradiction to this passage, and I think the rest of the Bible as a whole. So the second point this morning, we'll move on, is is that generosity is meant to be willing and cheerful. Look at verse 5 to start with. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. And then verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, there's a problem with these verses. And and one of the problems is that you and I don't like people to tell us what to do, especially when it comes to our money. Am I right? Were those nervous chuckles that I was hearing? When our money is involved, we don't like people to tell us what to do. But 
When we read this, these verses, that doesn't seem to be like a problem because isn't that exactly what Paul is saying here? You have freedom. I'm not going to tell you what to give. You decide and give willingly. So, so Paul is, is preaching this freedom, not compulsion or guilt in regards to our giving. So that, that's not the problem with this verse. The real problem with this verse, it's not with demand, it's, it's not with a compulsion to give. The real problem with this verse actually lies in our hearts. Because so many of us are unwittingly wrapped up in the love of money. And so many of our hearts bow down to an idol called mammon or money or possessions or things. And the problem with this verse and the problem in our heart is that we want to give the minimum amount possible. And if we want to give, if we want to give, we certainly want to, don't want to go so far that it hurts or that it's a sacrifice. So verses like verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The problem I see there is the heart part. Because our hearts oftentimes are selfish, idolatrous, and broken. So we read that verse, and it's often met, though, with a sigh of relief because of our hearts. We, read it, we, we sigh with relief by, mo, by many modern Christians, and, and we... Giving cheerfully means, doesn't it, giving with a smile, not with a grimace. Okay, I should give with a smile, and if I can't give with a smile, then I shouldn't give because giving shouldn't hurt. Otherwise, how can it be cheerful if it hurts? So, so this verse is oftentimes a get-out-of-jail-free card allowing us to keep all of our stuff that we want to keep. Because if I can be a Christian and only give as much as I want and yet not feel guilty, great. Where do I sign up for that program? Now, some people read this text, and and I've heard it used to argue against the principle or or the idea of tithing. And, And that is against the Old Testament principle, which is giving of 10%. That's what tithe means, is 10%. This, this idea that you would give of your crops and your livestock and your produce, you would give 10% of it to God. You'd give it back to the, the priests and the temple to support the running of things. And, I, and I've heard it argued from this verse that, that Paul is removing that tithing principle, that 10% principle, and giving us absolute freedom. And on one level, these verses seem to free us from any kind of formulistic or legalistic obligation. Give what you want. Don't worry about the tithe. If you can't afford it, if you don't want to do it, don't worry about it. Give what you want. But I would put out there that this is not the biblical or the godly way to approach this question. Because think about it just for a minute. Paul was a Jew. And a very observant Jew. And he grew up tithing everything. That was just part of his rhythm. That was part of his habit. That's part of who he was. That's part of his relationship with God. For him, tithing, giving 10% of everything, would have been the minimum, the starting point. What he's talking about here is giving over and above the minimum as an act of cheerful and joyful Worship. You see, the heart cry of every believer shouldn't be, how little can I give? 
Can I, how close to 0% can I get away with? That should not be our heart cry. A heart that's transformed by the gospel should be saying, how much can I give? Can I give 50%? Can I give 100%? How much can I give? You see, because God is a cheerful giver, He invites us to give. That's what this passage is. It's an invitation. It's not a compelling us to give. It's inviting us to give. Because people who love God and want to be like Him fervently desire to act like Him by being lavishly and unapologetically generous. The third point this morning is that generosity has its source in God. In other words, God is the supplier of our giving. So look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And, And just notice in that one verse the language of abundance. You have the word abound twice. All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, every good work. Is there anything left out? You see, God is a God of abundance. And whenever you are generous, you are never, ever giving away what is yours. You are only giving away what God has already given to you. God provides the grace, He provides the supply, He provides the sufficiency. And our generosity, all it does is taps into the store of God's abundance and just turns the tap on. And then that tap flows through us like a conduit. Our generosity doesn't tap into our own stores. It taps into God's. God doesn't supply so that we can simply consume. Now, I don't think God's averse to us enjoying His gifts. But his ultimate intention for us is to imitate his generosity so that others can receive and enjoy his gifts as well. You see, the purpose of God's supplying is is others-oriented. It's love. It's generous love. So verse 8, so that we will be able to abound in every good work. Verse 10 talks about a harvest of righteousness. And for me, this is the nail in the coffin of the prosperity gospel, which says that the more you give, the more you'll get. The more you give, the more God will bless you. And and the paradigm of the prosperity gospel uses generosity as a mechanism, as as a scheme for maximizing my profits, for making my bottom line look better. But when this happens, when we, when we adopt that scheme, generosity ceases to be generosity. Giving simply becomes one more form of greed. In God's economy, however, the bountiful reaping isn't for me, it's for others. It's, it's for God's kingdom. And the, the prosperity gospel is a transaction that starts with me and ends with God. So I give, or I do something, and I keep my end of the bargain, if I have enough faith, and then God keeps his end of the bargain by increasing what I have. Alternatively, I think, opposed to the prosperity gospel, the generous gospel of Jesus Christ begins with God, not with me. Before we do anything, before I do anything, before you do anything, he is the giver. 
He is the supplier of grace. And ultimately, we have nothing to give that has already not been given to us. That is, let me say that correctly. We have nothing to give that has not already been given to us. God is the initiator. We're the responders. We're the conduits. So when I give sacrificially, the only thing I'm truly sacrificing, when you think about it, the only thing I'm truly sacrificing is my own greed. The only thing I'm truly sacrificing is my own love of money. The fulfillment of my own desires. My own hunger for more. Because I'm not giving away my stuff, I'm giving away God's stuff. Which should be a massive clarifier for how we deal with what God gives us. And when I talk about what God's given us, just think of everything in the world that you would call mine. You would point out and say, that's mine, that's mine, I own that, that's mine. All those things is what God is wanting to clarify for us are the things that are the subjects and the objects of his generosity and should be of our generosity. He enriches us for the sake of generous love. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way. Another verse filled with abundance. In every way, every way. It means that we have more to give than just money. We have time. We have talents. We have spiritual gifts to build up the body with. We have, we have service and abilities and strength. We have hearts that we can open up to others to love them in relationship. We have ears that can listen. We have hands that can work. We have spirits and minds that can pray and intercede for others as a gift to them. What might God be calling you to be generous with. You see, God desires for us to be conduits of grace. Verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. And then skip to verse 9. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, if God wants you to give, He will give you everything you need to show generosity and pass it on to others. Everything that you own is a candidate for giving away. I had a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who had a lot of money, used to say to me, If you can't loan it, you can't own it, which rhymes, it's great, it's helpful. I say that all the time to myself and to others. I love this saying, but perhaps God would want us to amplify it. Now, this is not going to be catchy. It's not going to rhyme, but you get the picture. If you can't give it away, you shouldn't have it. If you can't give it away, you shouldn't have it. And we often think that we don't have enough to give more. I don't have enough to, to give sacrificially or to give extravagantly. When it feels like, like we're barely making ends meet, how can I give more? But God doesn't require that we be rich in order to be extravagant. In fact, according to verse 9, God requires one thing, and that's poverty. Who does he give to? He gives to the poor. 
Because the rich can't receive. The rich can't receive because their hands are closed because they're busy grasping. It's only the poor who know that, as Jesus said, I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing. So, God, I need to receive everything. It's the poor who have their hands open to receive from God and hands which will be willing, willing again to let go what has been received. Poverty is a requirement for receiving because receiving is a requirement for generosity. We have to be poor in order to give. Poor people are better at receiving with open hands, and open-handed receiving is a necessary posture for open-handed generosity. So perhaps then we should begin by asking God to make us poor. Make us humble. Help us to be receivers. And perhaps that prayer would be a, a start to changing the rest of our prayers, which I know are often for me, God, can I have something? God, please give me X, Y, or Z. Instead of praying for the things that we would like to receive, perhaps we could begin asking him for ways that we can give. God, what ways can I give away and bless someone else? Point number four is generosity results in worship. Verse 11, the last part of the verse, through verse 13, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. See, the meeting of a need is not the lone function of generosity. I'm not just generous in order to meet a need. Our giving and service don't just supply the needs of the saints, of course, although, of course, that is one function of generosity. Generosity, though, also produces something else, thanksgiving or gratitude in those who are the beneficiaries of that generosity. And thanksgiving itself is a form of praise. It is a rich, heartfelt worship of God. And this is where, where God's gracious and abundant bounty is obvious. When I am generous, that generosity produces an overflow of thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving doesn't need to be directed at me, it's directed at its appropriate object, God. So, so Paul can exuberantly proclaim in thanksgiving, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We can all say that. Because that is worship, and generosity results in worship. Number five, generosity flows from the gospel. Right there in the middle of verse 13, it says, From your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. So so the reason that we can be generous is because of the gospel. We can be generous because God was first infinitely generous with us. God loved us so much that he sent his only son so that we might freely receive through faith the gift of life in him. A restored relationship with the one true living God. The eternal son of God has become one of us, emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of death so that we might be restored to a relationship with the father. God was not stingy in how he saved us. 
He went all out. He poured out every last drop of blood, sweat, and tears for our sake. And so our submission, our obedience to a life of generosity is not so much a matter of duty as it is the appropriate outflow of lives that have received the greatest, most inexpressible gift. To receive and confess the gospel of Christ then and not be generous is an oxymoron. To receive that kind of generous generosity and be stingy is not the way God created us to be. Generous love is an outflow of the gospel. It's a sign that the gospel has changed you. Which actually leads into our next and last point. That generosity strengthens relationships between givers and receivers. So verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So not, all, all, not only are these those who receive thanking and worshiping God as a result, but they're also longing for and praying for the Corinthians. The final point in this passage highlights the fact that the generosity is fundamentally relational. God's generosity toward us establishes a pathway for a restored relationship with Him. And without Him reaching down and saving us, we could never know Him. That's relational. It's relationship. And in the same way, our generosity can act and does act as a bridge-building activity between the one who gives and the one who receives. You can see in this verse the depth of love and care that's expressed. While they long for you and they pray for you. You see, when generosity takes place between brothers and sisters in Christ... That is, for example, when I receive a gift from you, it's a reception of the grace of God. If, if you give me a gift, I'm receiving a gift from God through you. It's a reception of the grace of God being passed through you to me as through a conduit. And I should recognize in that moment of receiving that God loves you. If God gave you something to give to me, he must love you. So when I see that, I see that he loves you, and because of this, he's lavished his grace on you. And your generosity is actually a marker of God's love for you. The more someone understands and owns and realizes and recognizes and lives and stands in the love of God for them, the more generous they will be. And when I recognize that God loves you with surpassing grace, then what else do I have to do but love you as well? If God loves you, I better love you. And not so much for the gift you've given to me, but for the grace that God has shown to both of us because he loves both of us. Generosity strengthens relationships. So what does it mean then to be a generously loving people? What does it look like in light of all we've considered this morning? And I think for starters, it means that through the gospel, we have been made sons and daughters of God by faith. For followers of Jesus, we've received all of Christ's riches. There's nothing in the universe that isn't ours because of what belongs to Jesus. That should make you smile. Nothing 
There's nothing that doesn't belong to us. Paul says that elsewhere. I don't remember where, but it's there. Even more than that, though, we are being constantly shaped and being constantly transformed into a people who look more and more like Jesus. So to be a generous, loving people means to be a people who love like Jesus loves, abundantly, generously, extravagantly. So how will we be a generously loving people? And I just have to honestly say that I see in this congregation a generously loving people. I think we're doing pretty good. I see in this congregation a cheerful and sacrificial generosity that often just blows my mind. I spoke about it last week in regard to my upcoming sabbatical. I see it in the in the money we gave the Pregnancy Resource Center for in Madras, and the money that we raised for the Life Water offering, which Mark's going to tell about tell us about next week. Do you want me to just spill the beans? Is it one five? How much is it? Fifteen thousand dollars that you as a congregation raised for the Life Water Well this year. So praise God. There's generous love. Yeah. Amen. And as we come up to a new budget year, I see it by, by looking back and noting God's faithful provision, but also your faithful and regular giving to support the needs and the ministries of this church. I see it when I look at the budget in a... In a Portion of the budget, 16% of our monthly budget that goes to support missionaries around the globe and life-saving ministries like the Pregnancy Resource Center in Prineville. So the question going forward for me is how do we then grow as a generously loving people? And especially do that in light of circumstances like serious inflation and the looming threat of recession in our current economy. I think the first way to do that is that see is is for us to see that generous love doesn't always have to be financial. We can give in so many ways. We can volunteer for Anna down at the crisis or the pregnancy resource center. We can give our time and energy to mentoring young people at the landing on Tuesday or Wednesday nights or or hanging out with kids at the Rising on Tuesday nights. We can join Ken and his visitation team as they go out and actively love others by being with them and sitting with them and listening. There's so many ways in this church, in this community, that we can give and be generous. So the second thing I think we have to realize is that with God, we never have to have a scarcity mindset. We don't have to walk around wondering if God has enough. We have the privilege of always living with an abundance mindset. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Maybe you could say this with me. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you have sent the most inexpressible gift, Jesus Christ, your eternal Son, to come and to be one of us, to be born as a humble 
helpless, vulnerable baby to grow up in poverty, to be submissive to his parents, and then to love well throughout his life, generous love, God just pouring out your love to those around him, and then finally and fully pouring that out on the cross, being raised again on the third day, and, and now seating at the right, sitting at the right hand of the, of the, of the Father and generously each and every moment interceding even now for us. Father, would you take his heart and put it into us? Would you form in us through your spirit as your new creations, new hearts that want to give, that love to give, that trust in your abundance and your provision every moment? God, the sky is the limit when you're wanting to give. God, help us to not be clogged conduits plugged up with our own greed or selfishness or idolatry. Would you clear it out, clear the way for your generosity to be displayed through us as a generously loving people. We pray all this for the glory of Christ and in the name of Christ. Amen.